Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Self-Love Club, where boss women share their stories to empower others. Welcome to the Self-Love Club podcast. I'm your host, Belle Crawford. Hello, self-love clubbers. Thank you so much for joining me for a new episode. I'm so pumped to share this one with you. We'll get into it soon. Couple of quick things. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Self Love Club on whatever podcast app you like listening on. You can also find a full backlog of all the interviews ever uh, on my website, bellcrawford.com, along with articles, resources, things that I've written that you might enjoy and find helpful. Also, make sure you're following Self Love Club podcast on Instagram for daily content, clips of interviews, IGTV videos as well. And it's really cool to be able to connect with you and see where you're listening. Make sure you keep tagging us in your stories. Now, this year I was meant to be traveling a lot more for interviews, but look, if there's something we've learned, we could, there's a will, there's a way, we'll make it happen. And I'm continuing to interview people around the world for you. This one, out of Australia, let's get into this week's episode. There isn't much Flex Mummy can't do. Flex is a DJ, TV presenter, podcaster, content creator and artist and uses her platform to have open conversations about everything including racism, home decorating, I get serious inspo from her creativity and orgasms. We're so lucky to have Flex on the Self Love Club podcast. Flex, welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about yourself. Um, so my name is Flex. I am born and raised in Sydney, but I am from Ghana, which is in West of Africa. I am a DJ, a TV presenter, a podcaster. I own two businesses, which is a card game and a homewares website. Um, I model and I write, I make content for brands. Oh, I'm an influencer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You've gotten really good at summing it all up because I, I feel like when you're a creative, sometimes it's hard. People are like, what are you doing? You're like, um, how do I explain this? Cause people just don't always get it, but you did a great job. So yeah. Wow. You're (laughs) you're a busy lady. So did you know, we'll go through all that soon, but did you know growing up what you wanted to do? Absolutely not. I mean, I, hadn't really thought about it a lot really because I guess there weren't people around me that had anything any jobs I aspired to have so I was just really focused on having fun and going to school but being you know a good conversationalist and debating and arguing and always talking back (laughs) everybody had said to me in jest you should be a lawyer because that's what adults do when they want to bring you bring you down a peg (laughs) so then I thought I, I would be a lawyer but that dream soon died because you realize that you need to be exceptional to be a lawyer. You just can't be average in any way. And I wasn't willing to study that hard. And then I thought that I would study fashion because I used to dress up and, you know, you just draw these conclusions as a a teenager, right? Like I like to dress up, I'll study fashion. And so I went to, um, study it briefly and that was just terrible it was like useless to me and finding out that you'd have to put in all this effort not really make an income 
uh, wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. And then I was watching The Hills a lot on MTV and I was like, fuck, this looks fun working in PR. I like Kelly Catrone. <laughs> so then I went to college to study PR and then dropped out of that as well. No, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it when I when I was younger, but I just tried it all. Yeah. <laughs> and you're obviously a very creative person. So were you always making things and, and sort of being arty? Yeah, I guess I was more interested in monetizing than making. So I guess I was that person in school who was always like having a little business and selling things like making jewelry, selling it, you know, like um, making you playlists for a price or like, (laughs) you know, giving you some of my lunch for a price. (laughs) Um, And I was creative, but definitely not in the traditional sense. Like a lot of my friends were great drawers or they were great at media. And I was more so great at, you know, making HTML websites and making jewelry, just strange things that I guess I was, when I was just younger, I had this preoccupation with being unique and not being like anybody else. So I didn't want to do what everybody else did. So while I could have um, been fine at drawing, I was like, well, everybody draws. I don't want to draw. <laughs> so there's also that. <laughs> drawing is so mainstream. <laughs> so basic. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. And look at you. Like, I think that's the thing with creatives. It's you were, a, you were an entrepreneur from an early age, you know, thinking about how you can monetize stuff. When did you first start thinking that way? Do you remember? Uh, well, I guess the conversation of money had always been a topic with in my household because it was my mum always saying, like, you can't have that. There's no money. Or like, no, we can't eat out again. There's no money. So obviously um, having um, being cognizant of the fact that you need to have money to do things and mm. buy things and go places and see your friends. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to do things. So I didn't necessarily want the money. I just knew that if I didn't have the money, then I couldn't do things. So it's an interesting one because I guess um, if if you're fortunate enough to not have to think about money when you're younger, you start to govern your life purely on what you want to do, not what you can do. Mm. But I guess I was hyper aware of not having access to a lot of things and not in a way that I I wasn't um, treated well. Like I come from a divorced household. So my dad always spoiled me a lot. Like, hey, dad, I lost another phone. And then he bought me another <laughs> phone. Hey, dad, like, can I come over and get some money? And then he give. So there was that polarity of being like, well, how come he has it and you don't have it? And I don't want to be in a position where I can't have stuff when I want it. So it's all quite self-serving. When you're younger, it's really hard to connect those dots. Yeah. And so you studied a bit of fashion, but then that wasn't for you. And you went to do PR. And then what did you do after that? So PR was an interesting one because, as you can imagine, it was nothing like the TV show. You're like, um, And I was getting really f- frustrated because I was paying such, like it was a private college, so I was paying out the ass to be there or like accumulating debt to be there. And Nobody in my class was inspiring to me in the sense that I was like, fuck, that's a fellow cool person who's doing cool shit. I want to stay to hang out with them. And none of my lecturers were really seeing the vision that I had. And because it was PR mixed with business development, it felt as though we would just kind of get a taste of everything and not really specializing. And so I thought, why don't I just get an internship with this spare time I had? There was no spare time because I was working in retail. I was working in a pizza shop and then I was studying And then I was like, well, let's just get an internship because if I get an internship, then I can like stop studying. That was my logic. So I ended up interning at this agency that had clients like MTV and Cartoon Network and stuff like that. And I was just going there weekly and 
you know, making really great friendships and making really great business relationships. After about four months of that, then they're like, do you want to come and work for us? They were only offering a day, but that was enough for me to like quit uni. (laughs) And so I did. I was like, I, why would I accumulate? Like I've, well, to be fair, whether or not I had quit then, quit uni then or in a year's time, I'd already accumulated the debt. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'll just quit and then work and then hopefully get hired for a, a, a longer role. And so that was that transition, just interning and then being available enough that they were like, you, do you want to work here? And I was like, yes, I do. I want Yay. a real job. <laughs> That's so cool. And is that how you got the connection with, because I know you've done some work with MTV, is that how you got that connection? No, unfortunately, right? <laughs> that would be so, <laughs> so easy. No, I mean, <laughs> that have been way it, too honestly, easy. And, and it like, you're not, it, obviously that's how people assume that that came to be. And that's the most logical conclusion, but no, MT, working for MTV and freelancing for them, like I do now, um, being a presenter for those who might not know, came years later, I would say almost two years later. I didn't actually have any contact with MTV when I was working as their agency because there was a hierarchy there was like the boss and then the senior PR publicist the junior publicist then there was me so I never met anyone um but no working for MTV came after I became a DJ so talk us through we'll go there soon but talk us through the DJ so where were you like were you DJing what where were you DJing at places or were you making your own stuff yeah so basically what had happened was after I stuck in that PR job for a little bit everybody that was were in the roles above me started to quit and go to different places the tricky thing was I never really got a promotion I just kind of like took on more work Mm. and so feeling like you know, affirmed for having all this extra work, but not really getting paid more and not having any support. I burnt out really, really quickly. And when you're working at such a small agency, everything can feel quite personal. Mm. It's hard to separate yourself and your worth from the business. And so I was like, I have to quit. So I ended up quitting. And then I was working in the city, um, doing digital and social media marketing. It was good because I was managing people and I was client facing and I was learning all these skills and I was able to kind of take what I'd learned in PR and apply it really, really well. But again, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. I was so preoccupied with having a real job, a cool job, like making money. I wasn't really uh, aware of the fact that I could do all of those things. And if I wasn't happy or enjoying myself, then I would burn out really quickly. So I was working digital marketing for about a year and I was like, fuck, I can't quit because what other job am I going to do? But I just can't burn out all the time and get to work early, go to the bathroom, cry, leave at 9 PM, go home, cry, not Mm -hmm. eat. It just wasn't good for me. Um, but I was talking to everyone and be like, fuck, this is so cool. You get paid to do these things. And so, you know, it's like, when you're young, it's harder. Um, and so then I thought maybe I feel so terrible because I was tying my self-worth to my job output and I didn't have anything else to kind of keep me feeling alive and worthy. So I was like, maybe I just need to get my hobbies back again, like do some things that aren't so work centric and like develop a lust for life. But I didn't really have like enough time to get a hobby. And I was going out a lot because I was like, 20 at the time. So I was going out with my friends, clubbing every weekend, but I wasn't a huge drinker because I just didn't learn how to drink properly. I mean, you binge drink when you're like 15 and a park <laughs> and then everybody transitions <laughs> transitions to normal drinking, but I was yeah. much younger than my friends. And so they had transitioned to social drinking far sooner than I had. So I wasn't drinking, but I was going out all the time and being like, fuck, I spent so much time at the club and this is going to get boring really quickly because I'm not getting the full club experience. I'm like, but it would be cool if I could like work at the club. Then I could like come here, get paid, have fun, look cute. 
Then I became a door bitch. And that was fun because, like, you're just there chatting, looking good, you know, letting people in, taking money. It was a very easy job. And it felt like not necessarily a hobby, but it felt it gave me some interest outside of, like, working in an office. And that was really exciting to me. And then I could kind of flex my creativity by, like, doing wild makeup and wild wigs and wild outfits. And, like, that was the time. It was, like, 2000 and. 12. So like looking like you came from the internet was like a big deal back then. Yes. You're wearing your Jeffrey Campbells and everything. Oh my God. I, had a, I still own, I don't wear them. I can't get rid of them. Like See? I had, I had a collection of the liters, the Fox. I had so many, yeah. I had the spike ones, the like, um, the ones that look like furry. I can't get rid of them. And they are like, yeah. I can't believe we love them so much. Looking at them now, I'm like, these things are hideous. But like and we, we loved them oh, and they were so character defined. Like you knew that that would person if they were wearing leaders. You knew. I know. <laughs> I used to wear my black leaders like every day, even like doing breakfast All radio shows. I'd trot in in my little leaders. Like they were just, there was something about those. That's and I, the best. Oh, yeah, man. That, Bring back, so, the, bring back the memes. The yeah, I, I remember. And the hair was like, it was past the emo phase, but we had like, you'd yeah. still have, you'd still have bits still of emo-centric. color. emo-centric. You'd still have bits yeah. of color. Still I had like, part. I had like, yeah, I had like a shaved little patch on one side that looked cool, you know, like a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Like it was such a sign of the times. Like you were considered a creative person if you put time into your identity. Like all these things were so valuable. So yeah. to be able to monetize that, I was like, this is fucking sick. Um, yeah. So that's what happened. That's and smart. I did the door bitch thing for a while and I was meeting a lot of these like promoters who were doing different club events and stuff. And there was this one event called Side Chains and they were like most internet like it was just the most tumbler out of all the events so like you know how you went to the club when you were younger and people were still wearing like bandage dresses and little heels <laughs> but this event was like very trendy you know we wore our jeffrey campbells we had our cool hair yeah we wore our internet goth outfits it was fun <laughs> and i remember i remember um when they found out that i did pr and business management they were like oh well can you do like publicity for us i'm like it's a little bit different doing publicity for a club night versus like cartoon network because cartoon network is so credible and everybody already wants that information they want access to that so i can't but i can like analyze your business and like see if i can help them and if long story short i remember saying to them like so you spend a lot of money on djs from like nine to twelve but nobody's there because it's the club and nobody goes out before like midnight and also it's free to get in so you're investing money and you're not getting any money back Mm. because usually you make money off the door and then the bar so i was like why don't you not hire djs for that time and you guys who work and promote just dj like just play a soundtrack and focus on creating a vibe and they were like, oh, no, I don't know. We still want to have DJs and stuff. But, yeah, you're right. It is expensive to, like, hire people to DJ when there's nobody here. Yeah. And I was like, look, I'm a door girl from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. My job starts properly at midnight because I can start charging people. But before then, I'm just downstairs talking to the security guards. So I could DJ. And they're like, you can't DJ. You don't know how to. I'm like, how hard can it be? <laughs> so I went home and I downloaded some software and like learned, like learned the basics. And then because I had been dressing up and going out a lot and, you know, being outlandish, it, when people found out I was a DJ, it made sense. And then people just started booking me. So the, the club they used to go to were like, fuck, you DJ, great, we need somebody. And because I was new, I was cheap, I had friends, I had like a social network that would come to these events. It was like a win-win for people. Mm. I was not prepared for it to be a job. It was just a fun thing. Finally, I had something to look forward to that wasn't going to an office job. I could like go out, meet my friends, network. It was the sickest thing ever. And then it spiraled really because... 
I was doing like one DJ set for a couple hours and then like two that night and then three that night and then working Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And then a bar who like was open on Wednesdays that come in and DJ then. And then I was doing like 25 hours of DJing a week. And I was like, this is like a lot, a lot. And it was still fun. But what was happening was that because when I was DJing a little bit, it kind of gave me the boost of energy to get through my day job. Now I was DJing a lot. Yeah. The parallels between loving something and hating something became so big to me that I was like, fuck, I really hate my day job. I'm a, like, it's so hard to get up. It's so hard to go in. It's so hard to be grateful. It's so hard to be present. I just need to not do this. Mm. And I was like, fuck, but if I quit, I'm going to be like a, a full-time creative. And you know, like, only recently have creators been seen as like an aspirational career path. Yeah, I you know. know. Yeah, it's very bummy to be. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? They're like, oh, you're a creative. Oh, have fun being poor. Like, <laughs> exactly. So then I was like, well, I don't want to be poor. And I was making just as much doing both. But I was like, I don't know if my ego can handle people thinking, like, oh, you don't have a real job. So I remember like chatting to like my friends and my mom and they were like, I don't know. Like, if you think it's a good thing, what's the worst that can happen? Like you do this for a bit, you don't really make a lot of money, you have savings and then you quit and go back to a real job. Like it doesn't matter. So I did, but it was kind of a convoluted process of like going part-time and then going casual at the office job and then being like, no, my head's still here. I promise. I'm, I I, want to stay. You obviously are able to handle doing a lot of different things, but it would have been really hard when you're DJing and those hours and you're probably tired and you know, like it's just, it's a lot to do at once. And it, it can be hard, especially as a creative and a freelancer, it can be hard to do everything, but you can do it. But yeah, just, it really can take its toll. It's not like you have like a I think a lot of people understand. They're like, why don't you just have days off? It's like, I can't always have days off, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think mm. it's really easy to manage, like physically manage your time and do a lot of things. But mentally, when you clock out, it's really hard to jump back in. And I think what I struggled with is that I wanted to be taken really seriously in my office job, despite looking the way I did and being outlandish and dressing up and wearing colour. I still wanted to be perceived as a professional. And so I wanted to hide that other part of my life. So I didn't want to, I didn't tell anyone that I was DJing or doing other things. And then I kept getting outed by like my colleagues who'd be like, oh, I saw you DJ here or I saw some magazine write about you. And so I was like, fuck, I can't hide things. And then my boss started using that as ammunition to justify why I wasn't being present. So it felt like there was no way to do it to like make everyone feel seen and and heard. But yeah, so then I was DJing, quit my full-time job, started DJing and just was taking gigs anywhere I could, like just to kind of maintain. And because you could only DJ on certain days at certain times, it was really important to me just like, just do the job, mm. take everything, be really grateful. But naturally you burn out of doing that shit because my perception of being a DJ was from my experience of playing with my friends, playing the music we wanted, you know, dressing the way we could. And then you realize when you're a DJ for hire, you can't play what you want all the time. There are rules and guidelines and there's like things that you have to do. It's a job. You can't just fuck around and do what you want. And so having that realization of moving to from a job to a job yeah. <laughs> kind of like took a second for me to click. Yeah, you're like- <laughs> And I was like, fuck, okay, this is, this is like a job and I can't 
just fuck around. Not let's fuck around, but it's not. I know what you mean, yeah. What I do is dictated by somebody else, not like I thought it would be. So then just started DJing and was doing the full-time DJ thing. And I was quite um, fortunate enough to have people who knew me from a PR background who'd be like, oh my God, can you DJ for like this corporate event? And corporate events are where the money's at. You know, you can get paid 10 times in an hour or you get paid to DJ in a club if you market yourself right. So it was, I was fortunate enough to like transition to more like corporate DJing and DJing for like Prada and Chanel and Spotify and eBay and, you know, having fun daytime or like early evening gigs. And that was easy to manage. And then burnout happened, but I was like, let's forget the burnout because you don't have an alternative. Like you've come so far. Are you really going to go back to working a traditional job? Things are looking up. If you, you know, you're living in your own apartment, granted it's rented, you have disposable income to buy what you want and go where you want and travel. Like you're living a lifestyle, get over your burnout, get over your mental like barriers. And then at the time I remember I was like, okay, I need a hobby. (laughs) Same as what happened in an office. I was like, what can I do? Like what it would be interesting. And I thought, why did I think a little bit big? Cause I couldn't have really ever perceived myself becoming a DJ. And, And I did that. So why didn't I think a little bit bigger and think, okay, what's the next thing I can do? So I thought I'd love to do TV. Like that, that seems fun. Like be a little like TV presenter, chit chat, all that good stuff, but I didn't have connections. And so I kind of just let it go. But then at that time, a lot of publications were writing about me. And I remember MTV had hit me up and they wanted to do a video feature on me, you know, like Australian it girl things. So I was like, this could be my in. Um, But the person who was managing the project was a freelancer. So it was for MTV, but not really in MTV. I was like, fine, whatever, that'll do. The feature fell through, but I asked, I ended up asking this girl if she could give me a contact to MTV, just like put out the feelers. And I reached out and they were like, oh, it's funny you reached out because we're looking for a, a news presenter right now. And we need someone who has a music interest or a music background. And you do. I was like, yeah, fuck. And they're like, you know, do you have any experience? And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> and I lied. They're like, can we see it? And I was like, you know what? I'm working on a show reel right now, but if I can just come in and do a test, you know, then you you can see me in the flesh. Yeah. But basically I came in, I did a little test. I felt like, I don't know, it was just so weird to be doing something for the first time and being so close, being like, fuck, do I even have the skills to like recite a script? I've never done that before. But I went I knew I didn't do very well, but they wanted me. So I was like, yay, they want me to come in one day a week and, you know, do news for them. And I was like, this is fucking sick. And then, yeah, and then from there, it's like it kind of gave me access to to do all the things because, you know, being a DJ was one kind of like clout point. Being a TV presenter was like the second clout point. Then being an MTV presenter was like the third clout point where everybody was, I guess, very receptive to wanting me to do things with them. You know, Mm. yes, wear our clothes. Yes, do this voiceover. Yes, act in this commercial. Obviously, if you're able to to thrive in these industries and how bad can you be? Mm. And yeah, from working in PR and knowing how to pitch myself and knowing how to like, you know, code switch from corporate to creative and all of these things just made the transition a lot easier than it would have been had I been starting from like scratch. Yeah. And so when did you start? um, I know you obviously do a lot of your own business stuff. When did you start doing your reflex cards? Because I know they're huge. Talk us through those. Mm. And they started because um, I'd started a podcast with an acquaintance um, that I met when I was in New York called Bobo. And 
our podcast is called Bobo and Flex, and we just have discussions on philosophy and psychology and the human condition and dating and sex and all these these things. And it got to the point where we would be getting so much good feedback on how we're able to just hold conversations and that we ask really good questions and we ask thought-provoking questions and all these things. My profile was a lot smaller then. So I might've only had like, let's say 10,000 followers on Instagram. So it wasn't like I was popping. Having people regard me as someone who was like good at something, like having good conversations was pretty big for somebody who on Instagram, who's just regarded for being pretty. It's a different way of your audience to like respond to you. People would, DM me and say, like, I just want tips on how to ask better questions, how to ask more interesting questions, how to have better conversations. And so I would literally just, like, message people and be like, here are 10 questions, like, use them. And that's all it was. And then I remember I was thinking about how, as my profile grew and the expectation of me being very responsive on um, DMs grew, I was like, fuck, I just, it's so frustrating to, for me to be like here's questions no you already gave me those questions I want more questions to ask this new guy I'm seeing I'm like I don't work for you like I don't yeah that's the thing like, oh, yeah friendly yeah like it's, it was like a friendly like kiki why <laughs> yeah it's a tough line isn't it you know you want to connect with people and like you say you're known for getting back to people in your dms but yeah people expect a lot on on social media and it's like I don't yeah. like I'm happy to give you some stuff but I'm not gonna like constantly be yeah I don't work for you like that's it. And you want, but then it, at the same time, it works for you. you're their friend as well. So it's, it's a really tough one. So I, yeah, I totally know what you mean. What was it? Obviously you were doing a lot of cool things and you're a cool person and you're, and you're doing mm. great things, but what do you think helped? Like what made your, your, I guess your social media grow and to the spot you're in now, what do you think did that? I think it's a multitude of things. I think that unlike a lot of people who have commodified themselves on the internet, I didn't start using the internet until I was building a profile and although I like fell into DJing and fell into like TV presenting I was very strategic about being co-signed by brands and being co-signed by like corporations it's very like because I knew that like if a corporation was like like she DJs for us and a normal person would be like oh if they think she's cool then I think she's cool so in the early parts of my career I did a lot of work free work paid work uh DJing team presenting acting hosting um content for brands I was everywhere in that sense and because I was everywhere in different industries like you know, music and fashion and beauty and tech and whatever, it kind of felt like an MTV. That was like having my face in the train station was a huge brand builder. So it kind of felt like the perfect storm for a lot of people who were kind of like, whoa, I don't know much about her, but she's literally everywhere. Mm. That was the feedback for the first two years of my career. You're actually everywhere. Like you were in the club DJing for me and now you're at my office DJing and I just took the train and there you are, there's your face. I found that my audience was so interested in claiming me and reminding me that they knew me from this place and before these people <laughs> knew me. So it's a different kind of ownership that my audience had because um, I didn't have like a consumer audience profile before I had brand interests. Whereas a lot of people build their audience first and then the brands come. Yeah, exactly. Did you make all those connections yourself or did you start working with like a talent management agency? Like how did you start getting all that work? Obviously being at MTV and other things you were doing was helping. Mm. So I made all the connections first. And so the way I approached it was using my PR brain and saying that like, I know that these brands don't know me. And I know that from working in an office, what I loved was people contacting me and offering me their services. So like photographers being like, hey, like here, here's my, like, you know, my, my portfolio, 
like hire me if you want to. That's what I knew. So I thought if I could just approach all these different brands, whether they be clothing, tech, fashion, or like beauty, whatever, with a little pitch document saying like who I am, what my profile is, what my socials are, what I can do. Then when the time comes, they'll just book me. And I used to do that quite like meticulously. And just because you know, it's what I knew how to do having a PR background. So I would contact brands directly, not knowing that all of these brands were run by agencies, which meant that suddenly I'm talking to an agency who manages so many brands in so many different industries being really like, uh, yeah, meticulous with like getting my name out there. And then kind of like having three or four key contacts who had access to all of these contacts really, really helped. Mm, Um, and it was as simple as like, learning to write a good email (laughs) and making sure you're talking to the right person. So yeah, that was a tricky one. And I also think that it was also a perfect storm in the sense that from 2012 or 13 onwards, it's been so much social change happening at once, you know, suddenly we're really aware of the patriarchy. So we want to elevate women and suddenly we want to elevate women in their different creative industries. We want to elevate women in music, we want to elevate women in fashion. And then, Oh, we want to talk about, um, you know, racism in Australia, because that was a hot topic. And we want to elevate, you know, minorities, the second generation immigrants. And here I am, I fit the box. And then we want to talk about, you know, um, body positivity and confidence and all of that. And here I am overweight, like all of these things kind of really helped because there was a point in time where somebody who was the carbon copy of what a stereotypical Australian looked like wasn't really what brands were interested in because Mm -hmm. they wanted to prove that they weren't racist, weren't homophobic, weren't bigoted, weren't whatever. They were all inclusive and they were all diverse and for so many brands. And considering that if you look at the Australian landscape, there aren't a lot of black people, there aren't a lot of black women, there aren't a lot of black overweight women, there aren't a lot of of people who have profiles who are not Caucasian. Mm. So it was like, we'll just use her and we'll just use her and we'll just use her again because who else are we going to talk to? Mm. Really? Yeah. That's what it was. In a lot of ways it was a really good thing for you, but like you probably could see the irony a bit in it as well. Absolutely. And that's why it was important to me to kind of make sure that I was building something of value outside of being like a token. I was aware of the fact that I was being tokenized. So I was making sure that the briefs were legitimate. But then to the, while that was cooking away, I was like, I can't compete with people who already have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers because what we know about the internet is that people like, like attracts like, and people are attracted to people who remind them of themselves, whether that be what you look like, where you're raised, what you sound like, what you do for work. And if you look at me on a piece of paper, so much of who I am isn't really relatable. Like you probably don't know what it's like to be a second generation, like African Australian. You probably don't know what it's like to be overweight or to have worked in a corporate career and then moved to creative. Like all of these things just aren't accessible. So it's really important for me um, to, again, engage with my audience and like find different ways for them to feel like I'm accessible to them, even if it's not on face value. And that really helped. And I think also I was having this conversation with Bobo There's something about a traditional influencer that's aspirational, but also makes you really insecure. So when you follow that really amazing girl with that hot rig, you're kind of like, I love her rig, but I hate that I don't have that. And so much about me is not conventionally beautiful, but I've been co-signed by so many people. Everyone's like, fuck, I feel confident because how is she overweight? And she gets, she still gets to model, you know, like I never see black people do this in Australia and she gets to do it. I like her. So there's this element of like being, quote unquote unique or so different from the norm that really did help 
bolster my profile. Mm, yeah, we'll talk through some of those things, but what are your thoughts on, because I guess you are considered these days to be, and I know it's not like there's a lot of negative connotations, but you are an influencer. Mm. So what's your thoughts yeah. on influencers in general and what we're seeing these days? Because I feel like you would have some opinions about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would say back in the early stage of my career DJing and stuff, when I was so concerned, still so concerned with being seen as legitimate because I was so scared to be seen as like a bummy creative that <laughs> I was just trying to find ways to remind people that like, no, I've like, I've got my head screwed on. And so I really detested the title of influencer because the connotation was always like, you're just here because you're pretty, fell into it, what you do isn't hard. While I did technically fall into all of these things that made me an influencer, all of those things were hard. I spent a lot of time being like, you know what, don't call me that, don't call me that. And thinking, you know what, so many opportunities have come because people think I'm an influencer. I need to just sit into that title and let the work speak for itself. Because I feel like if you put 10 influencers in a room, it's very easy to kind of, and I think audiences can do that as well. It's very easy to discern between people who are just here because they're hot, which is justifiable. If I could just show up places and be myself and just make money like that, I would do that in a minute. Mm. And there's on the other spectrum, there are people who are there and they create content and they educate and they entertain and all these things are different. I think that whichever one you are, the bubble is going to burst because it really is an unstable business model. Number one, making money off being yourself is such a tricky thing to do because you need to maintain this idea that you are the same person as you grow or you need to be able to attract a new audience every time you change. Mm. And so if you are somebody who was uh, like a photography influencer and suddenly you're talking about being a mum, you better hope that you're able to find your mummy audience <laughs> or transition your photography audience. Otherwise you're screwed, you know, <laughs> and you can't just build an audience out of nowhere. Like you have to be all of these things that are considered palatable and that's very hard to do. I don't think that the average consumer knows that influencing has always existed. It's just been a bit behind the scenes. So advertising is a form of influencing and marketing and PR. And now they're more cognizant. Um, they're attacking the influencers first because influencers get paid to be relatable. And the more you dive into their lives, you realize it's the polar opposite of yours. You don't get paid thousands to take a photo and they do. You don't get paid to go overseas and they do. You don't get paid to be yourself and they do. And suddenly those polarities become really, really clear the more you dig deep and the more we start to put transparency culture on a pedestal. Mm. It's very dangerous and it's going to burst. And also I think that a lot of influencers, no matter what kind of like specialty you have, don't realise the duty of care they have to an audience and how liable they are. Mm. Like I stopped giving advice in my DMs so long ago. I stopped doing like individual recommendations. I stopped alluding that people should, shouldn't, should, whatever. And I don't think people realise you put... You see 100,000 followers on Instagram, you think it's nothing. You put 100,000 people into a room and they all do what you say and suddenly you realise it's a bigger deal mm. than you think. You know, like you're in a room, you tell 1,000 people to drink water and they do, huge. You tell 10,000 to do it, huge. You tell 100,000, that's crazy. Mm. So I think there's an issue, yeah, with the fact that a lot of them don't understand their duty of care. And then on the flip side, there are a lot of people who want influencers to do more and to be more. If you're just here being pretty, like need to do something more, add value, which now we've gotten to this weird territory where every influencer wants to be an educator and a teacher and an instructor, which is fine. 
if they're doing, if the information they're giving is right, usually it's not. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. Every time I see someone, someone giving skincare advice, being like, are you sure, babe? Because we could have got paid to try that once. We know you don't understand skin types that aren't yours. Getting paid to tell someone what to eat, what to wear. It's just a messy, it's messy. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think the thing is, and you're so right with the duty of care thing, and I have a real issue with it. It's like, you're not a doctor, you're not this. So like everyone's become an expert, but you're actually, mm-hmm. you're not like, you're not a doctor. Like there's, and so if it's someone's to me, like, cause you know, I'll, I'll go to my naturopath and they're like, what are you taking? I'll be like, I don't share what I'm taking because it's different. You need to go to someone who can tell you, you mm. know, like I'm not a professional. Here is the, and I'll, you know, like if I interview people, I'm like, this person is a professional. You can contact these types of people, you know, like. A lot of it's very dangerous. I so dangerous. I think some people just aren't very smart, and they just think that they can do that. Yeah, you and can. it's trickier because I think that even if you want to be a really like conscious influencer, your I think audiences don't realize how they affirm bad behavior. So I will do a post right, and, and I want to let's say I'm. I've seen positive results in my skincare and I want to show love to the brands who I'm using. I'll say in a story, hey, I just want to show you some brands, some products I've been loving. Don't ask me any questions. I'm not a skincare expert. I can't and I won't give you advice. I'll share some serum. I'll share some moisturizer. There'll be 20, 30, 40, 50 messages of like, do you recommend this for normal skin? Do you recommend this for oily skin? What's that texture like? Can you describe the fragrance? I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the you get a lot of pushback. Like, why? Just tell me. It's like, because I'm not an expert. And if something bad happens to your skin, you're going to come looking at me, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Then on the flip side, I always also have this thing where I'm very funny about who I do sponsorships for, when I do them, and why I do it. Because I want to get paid to do shit I'm already doing. I am really clear where I'm getting paid to do something. And the rest of it is just me doing shit. And so I'll post something on my story and my audience will be like, oh, I hope you're getting paid for that. You should definitely get paid for that. Oh, ask that brand to pay you. I'm like, but why? Because if everything on my page was sponsored, then you'd think I'd be, I wouldn't be as credible, right? So it's this relationship between everybody hating what influencers stand for, but also like all these audiences are the reason why influencers exist. Yeah, you're like, right. Like even if you hate watch them, you love watch them, you've commented or you've lurked all of these things, all of these analytics are the reason why they get paid to do what they do. Mm. And I don't think audiences really get that yet. Yeah. It's I feel an interesting like industry. It is. I feel like people are cottoning on like, and some people are getting over aspects of it. I don't do unboxing because... A, I think it's freaking boring. Mm. I think it's so boring. It's like, oh, look at this. And PR companies will hate me. And also, I don't like, my whole thing is I don't want to make people feel shit about themselves. So it's like, I don't want to be like, look what I got and you didn't. You know what I mean? Or also, here's a product that I've never used. Oh, my God. It's like, how do you even know it's good? You know, like it might be crap. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, all my Instagram story is is disclaimer. It's like, here's an eyebrow gel. Don't ask me about it. It's the first time I'm using it. I don't have a review. Yeah. Oh, I, I saw you bought these linen sheets. Are they worth it? I don't know what you deem to be worth it. I don't know how much you make. I don't know what's appropriate. Sorry. Try yeah. it. Let me know. A constant setting of boundaries, but... It's better than the alternative of me recommending someone something and like the company like goes into liquidation because all their products were like causing sunburns. Like I don't want any problems. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's the thing as well. Like some people, and it's the thing, like not all influencers should be getting a bad time because some of them are incredibly, some of them have done a bloody good Mm. job and they are good at what they're doing and good on them. It's like, you know, we don't go after advertisers for them making money. So why do people go after a person, you know? But I think there is a problem where some, like, and I've heard you talk about before, some people will be 
promoting things and, and you've said, you know, like I know you're not using that product and that and just, yeah. Mm-hmm. It goes both ways. Like I, I again, like I'm acute. I feel like from working on the agency side and having expectations of how influencers should function or whatever, I'm a little bit more, um, just a little bit more conservative about like what I want to risk doing, not conservative, like as a person, but just like, I'm just a bit more cautious because I know what the consequences are. I know what million dollar mistakes look like and I just don't want to be part of it. But I also think like influencers will be as, um, as loose as their audience allows them to. Do you know? Because mm. in theory, and because I don't really care if influencers are moral or immoral, it's not my business. But in theory, if you're looking at somebody who's promoting, let's say lube, I've got some lube here, promoting lube, <laughs> they get on their story, they're kind of like, yeah, you know, try this lube, it's amazing. And you don't follow up a week later and ask them questions. You never, they, you never hear about this lube again. <laughs> but it, was, it was amazing. It was fantastic. But you've got to wonder if your audience isn't questioning you, then why do you need to call yourself out when you can get away with doing so little? Like, because I feel like on a scale of ba- good to bad, using a product or promoting a product you don't use and then never using it again, it's not that bad. It's just a little shady. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I feel like it's these little bits of shadiness that everyone's just getting away with. But that little bit of shadiness just made someone 50K. <laughs> it's just crazy. made someone your yearly fucking salary. Yeah. You know? And all you did was just help them by liking their photos. Well, how do you feel about, like, I often think, and it's t- totally cool, like I love seeing people post really pretty hot photos and stuff, but I often would get, like, a mm. bit discouraged when you'd post a selfie and it'd get so many more likes. Not that you count the likes, but then you post something, like, yeah. a bit more meaningful and you're like, yeah, it's like a selfie will get more likes than something that you actually believe in. You know what I mean? How do you feel about that? Yeah. I used to care more about it, all of it. You know, like I used to care so much more. And now I've just been in the game on both sides long enough to be like, nobody gives a shit. Like, even if people, like the amount of people who will still ask me like what I do for a living or will still ask me like what country I'm from or like where I live or all these things I'm constantly talking about. I'm like, nobody's taking this information. So why do I need to stress about trying to do something meaningful or trying to do something hot? And it took me a second because I used to get, like you said, really frustrated about the disparity of engagement depending on what was being posted. And I think the person looking at this post is looking at a thousand other posts and it probably is muscle memory if they liked it or didn't like it. I'm sure there's more psychological reasons or subconscious reasons why they like things like colours and fucking composition than whether or not they read it. What was a big turning point for me though? I came to the realisation that the reason why I thought how well a post did was because I was putting so much unnecessary pressure on the whole process of posting on Instagram. Like I was putting more effort into an Instagram post than my job at some points, which is crazy. Like how am I going to like spend three hours doing an avant-garde makeup post and then spend minutes prepping for an interview I need to do? Like it just wasn't adding up. And so I had to kind of like peel back and be like, this shit isn't important. Like you need to reprioritize it and limit how much energy you put into it and mm. because you can't really afford to put emotional, mental, physical and spiritual energy into something so like rudimentary. It's so basic and Instagram will die in a second. Mm. And I don't want to be the person who's like, oh, wait, but my grid. Yeah. <laughs> it matters. It doesn't matter. And I feel this way especially because I think about kind of like zoom out of Instagram as a concept and think about, you know, anytime people speak about things that matter to them, like activism and politics, like all we do is talk 
so passionately all day about things that matter and then nothing changes, Mm -hmm. you know? Like the reason why activists exist and are so loud is because you don't need to just be one loud person. You need to be the loudest with the biggest reach and the most influence and the most impression. And it's like, it's so hard to do. So the easiest thing you can do for your own sake is kind of just like manage how much you care about this profile. Yeah. And if it matters to you enough to share this information, then having access to do so should be the reward in itself rather than who responds to it. No, I totally agree. Will literally kill you. Yeah. It's a real, it's a (laughs) fine balancing act too. And it's a, it's a good place to get to that because, and, and instead I think as well, like as a creator, it's like focus on what you're creating and then that's your work and then just share that. Yeah. And I reckon the reason why I've been able to take a more loose approach to Instagram and post what I want, say what I want, be a bit controversial if I feel like it, be a bit, you know, taboo if I feel like it is because Instagram and being an influencer isn't my only source of income. And I think I'm in a position where I can be like, I don't need to compromise who I am or what I want to do. And it's even basic shit. Like I don't want to compromise what I look like for the sake of a brand because you're not paying enough for that. Even if you're paying thousands of dollars, like, so I make my money off being myself. So if I compromise the way I appear in some way, whether that's physically or mentally, then the adverse impact of that is far worse than you not getting the right shade of lipstick on me. Mm. Like, I don't care about what you need because you're commodifying me. (laughs) Like you're paying, like you literally make money off me in perpetuity if you want to. And so for me, it's as simple as being like, if I don't want to do it and I feel as though I'm going to compromise my income, then I need to make another job. Like I need to write another book. I need to start another business so I can come back to Instagram and be like, you know what? I didn't do any sponsored posts this month, but it doesn't matter because I didn't need to. And I think that's why some other influencers, like I talked to a lot of my acquaintances or like colleagues, I guess you call them, who really struggle with trying to be themselves and talk about things they want to and deny working with brands, but that's all they do. It's their only source of income. And so they have to, you know, talk about their relationship and talk about that drama with that friend and, you know, not disclose that brand is really shady because it really affects their bottom line. How did you catch the attention of people and like talk us through the Jamila Jamil situation? Oh, look, I didn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you. I just saw she had reposted a picture of me and I was like, oh, this is so kind. Thank you. But, um, and I think at the time, because of course I was like cognizant of the good place and we're both presenters. So, and it wasn't until, you know, maybe like a month or months of her like shouting me out in and amongst everybody else she shouts out that I was like, hey, this is really kind. Thank you. And then we've been able to like have chats and just like, you know, kiki and like be acquaintances and stuff. Like she was a guest editor for this magazine in the UK called Stylist where she was able to like pick, you know, who'd be in it and stuff. And it, I remember reading what she wrote about me because I'd never asked her how she'd come across me or whatever. And she just said it was like, you know, she found me on Instagram just exploring through and she just really appreciated that. Like there was somewhere on the internet that there were people who just existed, who what they wanted to, who did their makeup how they wanted to, who also managed creativity with actually saying shit that matters. And she was just like, I liked her approach. I liked that it wasn't performative or contrived. She wasn't trying to be an activist or trying to be like the champion for like women, black women, fat women, anything. It was just, just putting stuff on the internet and it was nice, which I thought was lovely because that's the whole point. Like I don't want to be a poster child for anybody's kind of like for anything at all, because I'm so like, so unbothered. And <laughs> I really, I'm just hyper aware of the consequence of 
champion anything too closely, right? Mm. It's like one day, it's like everybody loves Pepsi. The next day, Pepsi racist. Ah, sorry. (laughs) I just want to like get by. The sooner I can have a steady income stream and not have to rely on like selling myself in some way, I'm like, I'm running to that destination so I can wake up, be behind the scenes, design furniture for a company, pay my bills, go garden, go to the farm. Like it's really not a sustainable lifestyle. Although I like it, I just know if this industry doesn't spit me out, then like the mental health ramifications will do it. Like Mm. something, I don't think the average person realizes the toll it takes on you as a person just to exist in an industry where you literally make money off being yourself Mm. because by nature, if you're not making as much money, suddenly like, well, what can I change? Do I need to like change my hair, be skinnier, be Mm. louder, be trendy, talk about this thing, be an activist, not be an activist, be vegan. Like all these things go through your head and what's to stop you from not doing it, especially when you are praised for the ways you change yourself for your audience. Yeah, you're Shit's so fucked. You're so right. You're so right. Shit is fucked, all right. I think also is that it's a hard one when you're like a, a freelancer and you have to generate your own income and you know like I often wonder I'm like am I going to be like what's going to happen? Am I going to keep am I going to keep doing this? Like you do wonder. Mm-hmm. It's like how, like you said how long uh, how long until they decide like what's next? I do wonder that sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. like as a as a and creative. Next is coming because next is always coming. I think about like you know on a really like basic sense. Like at, at one point in time where everybody just really regarded white men. Like we all loved our white men. There are politicians, our musicians, our actors. Like like Hollywood and the media was just ruled by white men, and nobody found an issue with it. It's just like why wouldn't they be men? Why wouldn't they be white? Of course we like this. And then all of a sudden, it was the worst thing you can be. Suddenly you were the brunt of every joke, and suddenly you're like you're viewed out with distrust and skepticism and everyone's like, no, you're the reason why this, you know, woman of colour doesn't have a position. Like you are the exact reason why these, this ethnic group can't win. And it's like, since when? And so you wonder when the conversation will switch again. It's like women, we don't like ethnic women on TV because they're always doing this and they're always doing that. We don't like creative women because they're always doing this. It's all, look, the mic will drop and it always does. And it's almost like you've just got to hope you're on the right side of it. Yeah. I think about Chris Lilly sometimes and how we all watched Summer Heights High. We all cackled. We all giggled. We all loved it. And we all had such fond memories of it in our hearts. And suddenly it's like, fuck, it's problematic. Like, huh? Like, what do we do with that information? Like, am I just meant to like discard everything I feel in favor of this narrative? Because the narrative always changes, right? And before, you know, you're kind of like, oh, nobody cares anymore. So do I still care? Do I delete those tweets defaming him? Like, I don't know. Mm. It's tricky. Yeah, it is. And another thing I wanted to touch on is that I think it's cool and, like, I think a lot of people don't do it, and especially for females. You talk about things like sex toys and stuff, which, and I think you'll have a lot of opinions on this. A lot, I mean, it's changed a lot. We're in 2020. We've made a lot of progress. But still there's this, like, thing about, like, women liking sex. Like, oh, you shouldn't talk about that, you know? Like, oh, is she she's slutty, you know, that kind of stuff. What do you think about yeah. that? I mean, I mean, the only reason why I started talking about sex toys is just because of the conversations we're having on the podcast where, you know, we would get like messages, like we have a Facebook group and people would comment and it would always be the same conversation around heterosexual relationships and how men are the reason why I can't come and men are the reason this, men are the reason that. And I was like, you do realise that like your clit is on your body and you can touch it whenever you want to. <laughs> like it's like, the, it just got a bit frustrating. And so 
I think the really forward conversation about sex happened is because I realized that, especially when I was younger and I was like really sexually repressed in some ways because I was relying on men to kind of lead me and guide me and show me that I was like, oh, the reason why I feel such disdain <laughs> is because I am relying on these men to like show me where my pleasure is. And I am relying on this man to make me come. And that's like putting all that power in someone especially when you're having casual sex and you don't like these people Mm. and they have all this power on you. I was like, no, it can't happen. It can't happen. But it's interesting though, because I guess because I'm having quite candid conversations all the time in my own circles. And when I made that conscious effort to want to be able to have, like, I just wanted to be able to pick up my phone and post anything. Like I didn't want to be like, oh, that's inappropriate or that's too much or that's that's uh, nah. and so that was kind of like a, a hurdle for me like if I want to get to this point where Instagram doesn't run me and I run my own Instagram then I have to kind of show everybody like the breadth and depth of me and then just like talk about shit when I want to I don't know like because to me like sex and the conversations that I have on sex are just a stepping stone to more important conversations I want to have but I think if the average person you know like scratches their face when we talk about female pleasure then can we really have constructive conversations on bigotry and homophobia and racism and class and economics and no we can't have those conversations because people are still like oh like you're a slut if you want to come when you have sex so I'm like I just want to get past this like pain point and just have chats. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the ways we talk a lot about self-care and self-love? What are some of the ways you look after mm. yourself? I would say, and it's a little bit unconventional, but by nature, I am quite an indulgent person. So the concept of self-care was really drawn to me by my mum. Like it was really important for her to see me care about myself in so many ways, hygienically, spiritually, like all this stuff was really like important. And so how I practice self-care now is like zooming out getting away from people and just trying to figure out who I am when nobody's watching. It's a really big one because so much of why we struggle with presenting as a well-rounded person is because we're using everybody else as the benchmark. Mm. So how can you really care for yourself in the way you need to when everybody's telling you like you need to meditate and you need to do this, you need to get this. It's like, it's too much. So finding ways to just almost like block myself off from the outside world and just like check in for a second is really interesting because to me that only used to happen when I was in extreme periods of stress where, or like, you know, when you're in a breakup and you have to kind of take that time to reflect, I didn't want to wait till I was already like fucking down in the dumps to really think about who I was in the context of just me. And if nobody was watching, what would I wear? What would I eat? Where would I go? What would I do? Where do I want to live? All of those things just like that to me is such a a healing concept because Mm. if you don't do it you really get lost in the source and you just start living a random life based on like some shit you saw in your friend's dm some shit you saw on tv and before you know it you're just a caricature of yourself yeah you're so right yeah i think that's the thing self-care is so personal and i mean we can all give each other ideas of things that work for us and i like to talk about self-care because it's not i think there's this thing that it's like oh my god self-care is pampering don't get me wrong. I love doing that. I love, I know that you love your go-to skincare. I, I Same. Mm. I've got all that stuff, like the masks, all the self-care, but it's not all about that. Like it's just like, yeah, zoning out, like just not thinking for a sec or just doing things that make you feel good and only you can work that out. So, But I think it is good to have conversations about these different things because I think if people aren't doing anything, then it kind of gives them some things they can try, you know, and make them think Absolutely. about it. Yeah. I love giving advice, but I do kind of um, 
I kind of encourage people to, because my mom used to tell me, right, when I was younger, her whole thing is I used, she used to tell me to do things like go wash the dishes, go clean the bathroom, go make a bed. And I would just like rush to get it finished and I wouldn't do it properly. And then she would go and check and then I'd have to do it again. So she's like, if you don't drop this habit of doing things, like something's going to come and finish, like somebody's going to come and finish it for you, then you're going to live a really unfulfilled life. You can't wait for somebody else to tell you what to do, how to feel. You need to like figure it out and finish things and be satisfied with the job that you're doing. Mm. And when I was younger, I used to get so frustrated, but it made sense growing up because I find that when I'm in really, when I'm in points of despair or I'm unsure or I need guidance, I just really take a second or take weeks or months and like go in my head and figure out what I need to do because it gets to a point where if you're constantly relying on the people around you to govern how you behave and when you do things, then when nobody's around you, suddenly you're lost, you know? Mm. And also it's like, we have to know that advice comes with bias, you know, like bias for how people view themselves, how they view you. And all of these things can really impact the advice you're giving is good or not. That's my one big advice. Mm. Like go within like whatever that looks like for you, thinking, meditating, writing in your journal, just figure out what you want to do, what matters to you, what does it matter? Because that's been really, um, really affirming for me. Mm. Realizing I just don't care about a lot of things and the things I do care about, I put in a lot of work. Yeah. There's so much we could talk about. Honestly, you're so great to talk to. Um, what is another question, another question I always ask is, what is some advice you would give to your younger self knowing what you know now? I would say just try it all. I reckon there was a time where I used to, um, I'm really competitive and I don't like, I always say I don't play losing games. I don't play to like to get involved. I play to win. There's so much of me that's so concerned with like doing things the right way, the good way, the perfect way that I feel like I missed out on a lot of opportunities, just living opportunities because I was just so scared of looking dumb or silly or stupid. And I've really grown out of that as an adult. I'll try, like, when it comes to, like, living, I'm happy to try and experiment because it's all so valuable, you know? Just, like, doing is such a powerful thing just to mine that data and to understand there's, like, so much more life you can live outside of the life you live today. Mm. And it's with basic things, like, you know, when you're younger and you're kind of like, oh, I would just never wear that or I would never go there or I would never eat that or I would never date that person. It's like, yeah, but what if they're going to unlock something crazy? Your life could be so much bigger and you've almost contained it to this, like, small little ball mm. because you're scared or you're insecure or you're just a little bit fearful and all those things are fine. But there's just so much shit out there that we will never have access to because we're just so afraid in some way. Mm. So, yeah, I would just say try some shit. Yeah. And I already did a lot when I was younger. I was already quite open to experiences, but I can always, like, recall times where I was just so, just like a no man. Like, there was no yes man behavior. I was like, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to go there. No, I don't want like, no. <laughs> it's nice to know how to set boundaries when you're younger. Like, I really commend myself yeah, on that. Yeah, because a lot but of us didn't. Also, <laughs> like, yeah, but also, like, what what do you miss out on? Heaps of shit. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool because I think, yeah, again, another another conversation is that as women we're taught to say yes. And not, not just women, it's like mm. people, like, be a yes person, say, you be, be, be nice, be a nice girl, say yes, you know, like, so mm. good on you for saying no because I've had to, like, you have to learn and sometimes, you know, you're made to feel like you're saying no, you're being difficult, you're like, you know, but but it's like if, Absolutely. if I don't want to do something, I'm not being stroppy. I just don't want to do it. If a guy had said no, then you wouldn't even blink a bloody eyelid. You know, like if exactly good on you for for like just automatically being like knowing your boundaries. I think that's great. 
my struggle is like, do I say no because I really don't want to or because I'm scared? Because there are so many opportunities yeah. where I'm like, I said no, but I could have just pushed through. Like I could have just tried it and I might have learned something. So it's like, yeah, just like, I mean, it's not even learning balance. We're just learning yourself. And a lot of us, like I said, we wait to learn ourselves um, when we're under pressure, mm. like where we have to like answer questions at a job interview or we're getting to a relationship or we're breaking up with someone or all of these things are just such specific experiences and learning needs to be a day-to-day thing. And I was going to say, because often I ask uh, advice you would share with other people, but I feel like you've just given us a heap of advice. Is there anything, <laughs> is there, like in your advice, so you've kind of answered that question already, but is there any other advice that you would like to share with women or with people listening? I would just say the one that's like changed my life is just to learn how to critically think. And I reckon, I know it's a concept people don't understand. And to clarify, critically thinking is the ability to see not only your point of view, but all particular points of view that might oppose yours, that might not resonate with yours, but you just have the bandwidth to see, oh, okay, how I see this might not be the truth. It's just an option. Most people think they're, they're, they have the ability to do that, but Objective thinking is so difficult because you really have to take yourself out of the situation. I know people struggle with that because it's the reason why I fucking like failed so hard out of high school. Like I got like, I just passed my like high school certificate because I didn't understand how to critically think. I didn't know how to analyze, didn't know how to evaluate, didn't know how to look at a piece of information and not project all of me onto it. And so I find that when I grow up and I look at the way people regard themselves and regard others. I'm like, so much of your issue in life is coming from the fact that you can't see the world outside of yourself. You Mm. can't fathom that people think differently to you and aren't enemies, that people eat different foods, speak different languages, believe in different things, and they're all just fine. Like, you know, that's a big one to me. And the more I learn how to do that and the more I try to take myself out of situations, <laughs> the harder it is to kind of reason with other people who don't know how to do that yet because it can't happen overnight. And it's a really strange concept to try and like, to try and process. And the turning point for me was like, I remember I was like going through a breakup when I was trying to break up with someone. And in, I don't know if it's like one of the last conversations we had, he was like, you don't get the world doesn't revolve around you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I couldn't fathom that the world didn't revolve around me. Like, cause I'd always been taught, like you are important. You are the center. My mom just like, she really instilled a sense of like confidence and ego in me when I just felt really powerful all the time. And so I could like say no and say yes, and do what I want and go where I want to do. And I'm going to do that. And so much of like that, what I was thinking was power was just ego, you know? Mm. And I couldn't fathom, like, I just couldn't process that what he had said to me. Like I'm able to acknowledge that it does and still acknowledge that everyone thinks that as well. And so I'm competing with 8 billion people who see the world completely differently to how I see it and are also valid in doing so. Mm. so it's a powerful thing it'll really yeah. change your life that's a good bit of advice hey thank you so much for your time today flex honestly i feel like i could talk to you for My so pleasure. long it was so much fun <laughs> um thank you so much for everything you're doing and everything you've shared with us really appreciate it my pleasure thanks for having me on Thank you so much for listening to the Self Love Club podcast. Please subscribe for weekly episodes and catch up on the backlog of eps you may have missed. Until the next episode, make sure you're following the Self Love Club at Self Love Club Podcast on Instagram for daily content, IGTV clips of interviews, and you can find me at Belle Crawford. Plus, find resources and articles on my website, bellcrawford.com. 
with a new recommendations page with my book club, all of the good shows to watch. And also, you can actually listen to all of the podcast interviews ever on the Self Love Club on the podcast page. We've got heaps of incredible guests coming up with weekly episodes available each Monday. I'll catch you really soon. Ellie the most, okay? Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.